This episode is sponsored by Koyeb.com. Koyeb is a developer-friendly serverless platform to deploy apps globally. Stick around till later to learn more. This is Cup of Go for September 29, 2023. Keep up to date with the important happenings in the Go community in 15 minutes per week. I'm Jonathan Hall. And I'm Shai Nechmad. Morning, Shai. How was your week? It was bad. Uh-oh. <laughs> I didn't, like, Sunday, Monday was fun. It was uh, Yom Kippur, which is another uh, religious holiday. It's, it's the season of Jewish holidays. I, like, went to the synagogue and whatever. It was nice. And then the rest of the week was uh, quarterly roadmap planning at my new uh, work which was very educational. And I learned a lot about the company and all the departments and what everybody's doing and how to measure estimates and dependencies and all that. And I haven't seen a single line of code all week. Save me. Let's talk about something technical before I die. All right, let's talk about the big thing uh, that was just announced uh, today or yesterday. We have a pre-release announcement coming out for next week. Yeah, so it's a security pre-announcement for a Go 121.2 and a Go 129. It's a minor release that includes private security fixes to the tool chain. We should just pre-record this segment because it's the same every time, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Next time, we might know what the CV was about. Uh, just put on your calendars October 5th. You know, you have to update. Just schedule that, uh, you know, maintenance on your on-call uh, ahead of time. And while you're uh, opening October and scheduling stuff, October 19th is my birthday. You could uh, buy yourself cups, which would be a nice gift for me. I just had mine a couple weeks ago. Oh, congratulations. Thanks. I'm getting old. What do you want to do when you grow up? I don't want to grow up. What are you talking about? All right. Let's do conferences. So we have two conferences to mention. First one is Go West Conference in Utah. Leahy, Utah, October 27th. Oh, while well, you have your calendar open. So October 27th, it's a hybrid conference for the Rocky Mountain West communities. There's no schedule yet, so I'm not sure what is going to be in the, you know, the speakers. It's all coming soon. You know, if you want to do call for papers, whatever, or get tickets, now is a pretty good time. But you can also wait until you know who's talking. And there's another meetup, the co-performance meetup. You can submit your talks by October 7th. Uh, and the meetup is planned for early November 2023. This is the first Go Performance uh, meetup, which is really interesting. If you're into performance, go hand in your, your talk. There's also a form for listeners. If you have a topic you're interested in, but you don't feel comfortable enough talking about it, there's another form for you to submit that. And finally, if you want to be a sponsor, you can talk to them as well. Uh, link is in the show notes. All right, let's talk about stuff in Go and not stuff around Go. Let's talk about interns. Wait, interns? Mm-hmm. No, intern. Yeah, so there's a proposal. came out. It's been out about three weeks. It's quite popular. It was actually brought to our attention on the Cup of Go Slack channel. It's about adding intern, the intern package and intern package. So we can finally have unpaid people doing our co-coding for us, I guess is the, the plan here. Did you um, listen to Inside when it came out on Netflix by Bo Burnham? No. He has a song uh, called Intern. Maybe we can put a snippet here because it's just too funny. <laughs> Does anyone want a coffee because I'm making a round? I'm an unpaid. There, the music's already in there. We don't even need to do an edit. <laughs> um, so what's uh, Intern actually about? I assume it's not the go tool train making me coffee. No, I don't think it is. Uh, so I had to look it up. I wasn't really familiar with the concept, but actually I was familiar with the concept, just not that name. Uh, the basic idea is uh, don't duplicate your memory. If you have the string, I don't know, Bob in memory 50 times, maybe you could have everything point to that one location rather than duplicating that all over the place. It's a little more complicated than that, but you get the idea. And there are some third-party packages that do some of this, but the idea is to create a part of the standard library to do this for you to reduce memory pressure and potentially i suppose performance as well in some cases so that's a really a high level overview and i probably butchered it according to anybody who actually understands what's going on i think that's the gist of it i really suggest reading the proposal not necessarily because it's super practical to your next coding task right now but at least for me you know just full disclosure it took me like three four reads uh to understand mm-hmm. but Sounds like a useful addition to the standard library, and I feel like I'm a better programmer after I read it the three, four times. Also, you know, since this is something related to performance, one thing I found interesting was, you know, today I you really have to know a lot about interning and the third party package and the fact that you need it. But to me, it seems like, you know, if you, for example, run go test with a minus profile flag, it should tell you 
hey, look at this, you should enter in this, right? Or maybe even from PGO, like if you see a ton of memory footprint for the same string, might be a simplification again, but I think it can be done. So an interesting proposal, it's still open. There's uh, not a ton of discussion, but it is interesting. And one interesting part about it that I think we can all understand is that interning is kind of a weird term and it, it requires knowledge of other systems and you know in java it means different things etc 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 so russ suggested uh russ cox of uh from the go team suggested renaming it uh and that like opened the whole renaming the package I, like totally like opened the whole thing in my mind of what does this actually mean is this a handle is this a dedupe is this a like you know i immediately uh regressed back to okay this is string manager string manager factory handler factory uh implementation back to the old c-sharp days i can say i'm really glad that russ brought up the concept of naming because that's something i have lots of opinions about so i'm gonna go add a whole bunch of comments about what color this bike shit should be (laughs) yeah uh but right now it's probably gonna end up being called unique and not a intern which is probably worse than my um but it certainly makes fewer interesting jokes about coffee. Yeah. So if you have a slightly better name than unique.handle, go offer it in the issue. Link is in the show notes. Um, last week, uh, we fulfilled one promise of backward compatibility. Right now, we're in the future, but we still want to continue to keep promises, whether they are about the past or about the future. And it just so happens that the promise we're fulfilling is also about fulfilling promises for the past and the future, because we're talking about forward compatibility. So if you missed uh, last week's episode, go listen to it. It's a pretty good one. But, um, you know, Go 121 has really expanded its commitment to backward compatibility with the bottom line of that post being there's not going to be a Go 2. So we're not going to have the Python 2 to Python 3 debacle in Go, which I think is good. I don't know. Maybe, John, you think that the language does deserve a fresh new version there are some things i'd love to get rid of but uh, not at the expense of uh, breaking everything so when talking about forward compatibility it's a bit harder to imagine at least for me because who knows what the future will be what does that even but what they are specifically talking about is that you know when you need a newer go tool chain uh, you get it from the go uh, command same like nvm or rust up in rust that's just built in to the go command. So if you're running go build and the go mod file says 121.1, but you have 121.0, it's actually going to get you the correct toolchain one. And there's also a new toolchain line in go mod. Uh, so you can define in your go mod file what's the minimum toolchain to use when working in a particular model. And that doesn't impose a requirement on other models. So Basically, the combination of these two things is you always know what Go toolchain you need. You never have to manually download and install a Go toolchain because the Go command is going to take care of it for you. And, you know, I think in a year's time, people are just gonna not going to know even like other than library maintainers who really want to stick to a specific version. People are just gonna, not going to know because it's just going to work for them. Even once, you know, new toolchains are being introduced. You don't want to miscompile old code or, you know, miscompile new code with old toolchains. So this sort of forward compatibility promise will make sure that your toolchain is always fitting to what you want to do. This double promise of backwards and forward compatibility really amazed me. It seems like the language is getting more and more mature and worries about more and more stuff that people could point at and be like, oh, but what about that? There isn't a lot of stuff in Go that's that's that I can point at and be like, oh, but what if... This and that will happen. Feels like they took care of everything. I think this is a really good promise for people who have, you know, go in enterprise or are trying to introduce it to a place where that's rather risk averse. This is not a new language anymore. In companies that are risk averse, this is not cutting edge, right? This is super stable, rock solid. You can build whole enterprises on it. At least that's my feeling. And we finally fulfilled our promises from that episode where we had a huge backlog and you're like, yeah, we promise we'll get to that, 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 and that. We cleared our backlog. I feel really good about it. I have to say this feature leaves me with questions. Ooh, which ones? I think the biggest one is what's going to happen to our build times? I mean, if you have 50 different dependencies and each one defines a different tool chain and you're running that GitHub Actions or Docker somewhere and you don't have a cache, how long is it going to take to download all these new dependencies that weren't there before? 
And more important, how are we going to solve that? So that's a good question. But basically, you guarantee that your program won't be compiled against older version of some version. You could do that now. But if you required a particular version of Go, there wasn't any way to express that. You had to do it in your GitHub Actions anyway. So people who already have people who already have this problem and solved it in GitHub Actions are just going to get a better experience. GitHub Actions or any other CI pipeline. I don't think that's true, though, because now our dependencies can be defining different toolchain versions, and we don't control that anymore. Yeah, that's true. But I think that if your dependencies are stuck on an old version and you have a new version, what actually happened is that stuff would be miscompiled, and you'll have bugs, you wouldn't understand them, and you'll file bugs, and like you, you discover it in runtime instead of compile time. I completely understand and, and appreciate the problem that's being solved. I just think it's adding another problem, which is that Build times will take longer now because you have to download 16 different versions of the tool chain, potentially. I assume most people, because, you know, because uh, newer versions of uh, Go are very backward compatible, most library developers won't define a strict version. They will define a minimum version. And because we have backward compatibility, that's where the, you know, c- combo is, is working really well. If my code compiled well on Go 1, you know, 18, it's a really safe bet to say it's going to be really good on 122, right? We had uh, right now in the upgrade, we had the init issue where init order was sort of messed up. And some people, including yourselves, had like seg faults and it's weird stuff happening and they had to fix it. And these sort of things will happen. But I think for most libraries and for most code, this is not a real issue and, and they can just stay on latest anyway. And I guess my second question is, uh, what happens if you have two modules, two dependencies that don't work well together? And I, and I think I've answered this question in my head. But my, my thought was, what if module A depends on some new symbol in the center library that module B doesn't have because it specifies an old version of the toolchain? And I, I suspect the answer is that the Go line defines which version of standard library is used, but the toolchain defines how it's compiled. Uh, I'm actually not sure. That's an interesting question. But if there is a real conflict, all this uh, proposal does is just uh, surface it. Yeah, right? yeah. It's it not like this it. problem didn't exist before uh, this uh, forward compatibility promise. It's just that now you might have a way to either surface this problem or even solve it. Uh, but that's an interesting question. Maybe we can uh, discuss it in the Slack channel. Perfect. Cool. So we talked about backward compatibility last week. We talked about forward compatibility this week. Let's talk about current compatibility (laughs) of our current tools to our current uh, capabilities. So there's uh, two related uh, stories here. The first is a blog post that came out uh, just a couple days ago uh, by Ian Lance Taylor from the Go team. Uh, It's on the official Go blog. It's called Deconstructing Type Parameter. And it's basically an introduction, a gentle introduction into type parameters or generics. Uh, in Go. So if you've been living under a rock like I have been and not haven't used generics yet really since Go 1.18 was released, this is probably a good introduction to the concept for you if you haven't already uh, read one by someone else. But you know who else has been living under a rock besides me? The LLM world. Yes. ChatGPT that lives under a rock too and until very recently didn't even know that generics existed in Go. But as you may have read in the news, uh, ChatGPT has updated its data set to January 2022. Do you remember, Shy when Go 1.18 was released? Prior to that. <laughs> no. <laughs> it was right after that. It was oh, really? in February of 2022, a oh. month later. So ChatGPT understands that generics exist and has a limited understanding of them based on the pre-release version of Go 1.18. So you can uh, And we played around with it. We did some investigative journalism for y'all. And the bottom line is that ChatGPT is similar to Jonathan. The fact that it has knowledge about generics, but it doesn't really understand Go generics because <laughs> it hasn't played around with it enough yet. Exactly. Uh, we tried feeding it some prompts that will yield go generic code or maybe yield some educational explanations when i tried to tell it please write a generic go code it was like in go you can't really do that uh, and here's a super ugly function with the, that accepts interface and returns interface and does reflect and switch on the you know kind and ugh. so for me it didn't work at all and you also tried to ask it some questions and it was like yeah. very limited knowledge yeah it basically said as of january 2022 i don't know about this however Go 118 should have this, and here's what I think it might have included. So I guess uh, our normal caveat of uh, for Go, LLMs are really good because the Go code looks really well and you know has limited tokens because it has tabs and, and, and everything is formatted the same way. Doesn't mean that it yields best practices. It's the average of what you find in GitHub uh, since 
uh, the knowledge cutoff, it's not the best programmer. It, it's not really intelligent. So important to review that and make sure that if you take a solution directly from uh, ChatGPT, you make sure that it's actually up to date. You know, if it suggests a library, see if there are newer releases of their library or maybe competing libraries. If, if it suggests a specific solution, make sure that the recent versions don't have something better or maybe even something in the standard library to resolve that. And uh, yeah, it doesn't really understand uh, Go generics, but so do we. So I feel good about it. We have a few extra things we want to mention. Uh, so we're going to go a bit over time. If you already reached, you know, you already parked your bike or parked your car or you're done with your run, go for another lap. <laughs> John, do you know about the race detector? I love the race detector. What does it do? It tells me when NASCAR's on TV. <laughs> the thing is, you took that joke and you took the tamest version of it as as two white-ish guys we couldn't really go a lot further but you know i am not even gonna say it because philippe is gonna have to bleep it yeah. and i don't i don't want to get canceled but there were other uh, spicier options there let's just say okay so what does the race detector do it tells you if you have data that is potentially unprotected by multiple coroutines accessing it simultaneously yeah, so this is a class A nasty bug, right? Super hard to, from reading the code, it's really hard to understand it because you read the code like you read anything uh, left to right, top to bottom. But in reality, code doesn't run like that, especially uh, when you have multiple threads. So for humans, it's really hard to catch. And, uh, you know, the Go race detector saved my ass a bunch of times. The interesting part about this proposal remembering that the the race detector exists and you should use it in the same way that last week we mentioned, uh, you know, test minus shuffle. This specific uh, issue, this is not actually a proposal, it's a bug report, was just running a go test with the race on different like versions and seeing the time that it takes for 120 and 121 to do the race detection. In 121, minus race hangs for one second, which sounds like a bug. But in reality, what happened was that the sleep time uh, was a thousand, but it was in milliseconds and they actually forgot to do times a thousand. <laughs> and basically what happened is from 113 to 120, the ad exit sleep flag did nothing. And then 121 fixed it. And the Go race detector has a own has its own finalization routine uh, and it has to sleep when it does that. And the fact that it does that, is it a bug fix? Is it not a bug fix? It's unclear, but at least now it respects it the way it should have been. You know, I don't think this is a good default. I think it should be a bug, but it's up to the project. It's not a... This specific issue was closed. So, and there is a super interesting discussion in the, if you really want to go deep about it, why does the race detector sleep at the end because why would it the thing is that if you have background threads destructors globals defairs that sleep some static objects memory arenas which was recently introduced right all these sort of i can say like leftovers in the in the memory if you don't do that just sleep for one second you don't give these other threads a chance to expose their data races uh so you know this is us really bad because every time you're under race detector you wait for one second it's super frustrating but if it detects more data races it's a hard trade-off to give up and since yeah. it's a flag you can you can configure it if you want so a super interesting issue mostly a, a reason to remember that the race detector exists and if you don't run it on your test you should and i think that wraps it up for this week we have a whole other bunch of stuff we want to discuss but we're just not going to get to it wait for next week Sorry, same post. We've been moving seven times from the backlog to the news items this week. We do have a good interview coming up with... Introduce our guest, Shai. It's Ian Smith. Uh, he is the developer behind uh, Perigo, which is a framework for writing microservices, but deploying them like a monolith into microservices, WebAssembly, or someone who's just really passionate about their project. You should stick around and listen. I think the only buzzword we don't have in the interview is blockchain, so... A blockchain AI, uh, you know. We covered all, AI all already in this stuff. episode, though, so we, we at least got that yep, one covered. Yep. Look uh, for your bingo cards just for, there's only one thing. There's the middle section where it says, uh, you know, another go release, minor release, <laughs> uh, and you're good. <laughs> all right. See you next week, Shai. Bye. This episode is sponsored by Koyab.com. Uh, Koyab is a developer-friendly serverless platform to deploy apps globally. 
No ops, no servers, no infrastructure management. If you have web applications, APIs, event-driven serverless functions, background workers, and even cron jobs. Well, if you have all that, your uh, software architecture with uh, too much work on their hands, because you can probably solve your problem with less stuff. But if you need some place to put uh, all these things, Koyab is a is a place to go. Super crisp UI, super fun experience, and they are cranking out features like crazy. They just announced a public preview of four new locations and multi-region deployment, which is huge if you need, you know, a bit more reliability, a bit more resiliency. What happens if uh, Atlantis takes over Europe and puts it underwater? Well, with Koyab, you have a multi-region, so you don't have to worry about it. You can put your stuff in US, Germany, France, Japan, like just globally, right? Which is great. Also, not just for a little bit. Also, if you want people to answer your service to answer faster to people in those uh, geographical locations. Thanks, Koya, for your partnership. If people want to talk to us, where should they do that, John? Uh, the best place to talk to me is uh, at the pub around the corner here in Amsterdam. <laughs> uh, if, if that's too far away, though, then Slack is a great place to go. Cupago channel on the go for Slack. Email works news at cupago.dev my email has been kind of off recently actually i have to check that i have a like a my business email and the delays have gotten from like one minute to 15 minutes i don't know why yeah maybe i should get uh, michael to set up his uh, email server yeah mox. for me that could be fun but you don't have to have your own email server written and go to talk to us you can just use your own uh, client and server even though it's preferable uh that's News at kapago.dev. News at kapago.dev. That's also our site, kapago.dev. You can find everything there, including our merch store, uh, which has cups, stickers, and <laughs> it does have a wireless charger. But nobody bought dust. yet. Nobody bought it yet, you including could be the first. Uh, Jonathan and myself, because we don't have we don't have anything that can be wirelessly charged. If you want to be the first brave soul to try it out, it's super expensive, and I can't recommend or not recommend it. It's completely experimental. Yeah. So good luck with that. If you do like the show, we would appreciate, you know, sharing it with your co-workers, co-students, just people, you know, your next go meetup. You can leave a review on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You cannot or should not leave a review on Google Podcasts because unsurprisingly, Google are killing another product. It's funny. I, I sent I sent you that thing about Google killing Google Podcasts. And since they then they also announced their uh killing their whiteboard uh, thing google uh, jamboard i didn't even know that existed yeah they are also killing that if you were in the educational space you would know about it it's a super good uh, whiteboard thing and obviously they're killing that as well Uh, so don't leave reviews on google Podcasts because i assume the migration to youtube music is not going to include the ratings but try youtube music for that i don't know i'm not really a fan of youtube music but uh, if you want to listen to your podcasts there Just make sure to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Let's just put it like that. Thanks all for listening. And coming up, we have a super interesting interview with Ian Smith. Stick around. See ya. So, John, we've been recording this show, you know, for a while now. It's been, what, almost a year? Uh, Not quite. I mean, I think we started in January, was it? So yeah, so three quarters of a year. And we're doing it, you know, I'm here in Israel. Uh, You're doing it there in Amsterdam. Yeah. Uh, but we have, you know, similar like uh, call and response at this point, right? Yeah. Like I tell a joke. It's hilarious. You laugh. Big, big um, fat air quotes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's harder to do it. You know, it's good that the, the show is distributed, but it's harder to, to ship it like that. If we were in the same room, it, if, it was a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. If only someone here could talk with, with us about the benefits of distributed versus doing it all in the same package. Oh, hey, Ian. Howdy. <laughs> Hi, Ian. <laughs> All right. Well, we have Ian Smith on the call today. The brains and bronze behind Perigo. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. But first of all, Ian, how about you introduce yourself? Uh, well, uh, my name's Ian Smith. I'm the founder of a company. I quit my day job about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, to uh, work on Perigo. I, for what it's worth, I got a PhD in computer science uh back in the 20th century, for those of you that remember the 20th century. And uh, I'm recovering pretty nicely from that. I feel like, um, yeah, I feel <laughs> like I'm, I'm a lot more healthy now. 
than I was before. So do you still have bell bottoms from the 20th century? I don't have any bell bottoms. I was not cool enough to uh, have those kind of things. Yeah, so I was actually a goth kid in the 20th whoa, century. Whoa, that might be cooler. Yeah, well, I have pictures to prove it. I had a lot of hair back then. <laughs> I'm envious. It's funny you say, uh, you know, the people, uh, if you remember the 20th century, and then you might be shocked to realize that a big portion of our audience was not born in the 20th exactly. century even. Yeah. Like, there, someone born in the 21st century is 23 now. So Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it just, you know, not that that makes me feel old and bitter or anything, but yeah, I understand <laughs> that. So before we dive into Perigo, uh, which we're definitely going to do, we owe a shout out to Josh, who gave us an idea to run a thread asking who wants to interview and who wants to talk. Uh, and Ian, you've been super proactive and just reached out to us, uh, which we really appreciate. That's really, really cool. It, there are a ton of good things that came from this uh, impromptu people talking with other people on Slack. The first one being, by the way, this show. Uh, like a super random message for me to Jonathan be doing exactly the same. Jonathan was like, hey, anyone want to do a podcast? And I was like, yeah. And here we are. So we really, really appreciate you reaching out and, and, you know, taking the time to come talk with us. Like I said, I can talk about any topic for any length of time from five minutes to a semester. (laughs) (laughs) So for those of us who don't know at all, like going in completely blind, what is Perigo? Perigo is an open source tool to try to help people deal with the practical problems of building distributed systems as microservices, because building microservices is just a lot harder. It has all of the usual problems of distributed systems, and the dirty little secret is nobody talks about that. They talk about the benefits, of of which there are some, but it's just a lot harder if you're an actual developer actually building things. Uh, My personal favorite is a distributed system can get 68% up, right? That is a completely valid thing for a distributed system to do. And what does that mean? What should the world be doing when it's 68% booted? Mm -hmm. Eh, You know? (laughs) So it's really a tool for developers, but, you know, it has all of the usual software sort of tooling benefits. Yeah, it's taken a long time to get the API into the state that it's in now. You know, Reed Hoffman, I don't know how how familiar people are with Reed Hoffman, but one of the guys that founded LinkedIn, he said, if you aren't embarrassed by the first version of your product, you waited too long. And I'm I'm pretty embarrassed. So uh, (laughs) I, I feel I feel good about talking about it now. Well, to be fair, Perigo is on 0.4 right right now, right? 0.3, yeah, but it's the API that took the longest time. The programming model took the longest a long time too. So, I this is actually really the fourth rewrite of the thing cuz I kept building versions and eventually, you know, I got something I was happy with, but it it took a while, a year basically. So, before we go too far, how do you spell it? Because I've already thought of four different spellings and none of them are working on Google. So I'm sure our listeners are having the same problem. P-A-R-I-G-O-T. It is a French word that means of Paris. Like we would say his driving is very New Yorkish. Well, that's what that adjective means in French. I found it. Ian, so github.com slash Ian Smith slash Perigo. Yep. Awesome. Or perigo.info. And obviously both links are in the show notes for you all. Or parigot if you're uh, if you're not good with French, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to say I've at, on my slides when I've given a couple presentations about it, I have to put the phonetic, you know, yeah. what how to say it <laughs> underneath for the benefit of the Americans. Nice. Yeah, I do it in Slack. I just recently joined a pretty big company that has a lot of a lot of our go to market team are in America. And every Zoom call is like, oh, Shay, nice to meet you. Like, no, it's shy. It's stupid spelling. It's not your fault. So you said this is for the Americans. And before we were recording, we were talking about where we lived before. Are you American? Or I know you lived in Paris for a while, but I don't know where you're natively from. Yes, I'm American. I'm proud son of 1776 or whatever that's i can't remember what okay. that phrase is yeah. but yeah i lived in paris they almost took away my passport because mm-hmm. you know you go to france you come back to america they're not happy about that kind of stuff <laughs> freedom fries and all but um yeah so i lived in paris for four years uh, i also spent some time in i lived in bulgaria for about mm-hmm. a year so yeah i'm cool. pretty familiar with the other side of the water awesome awesome I live in Atlanta now. Now you're in Atlanta. And, and as I was saying before recording, I, I worked for a company in Atlanta. I had the pleasure of taking, was at the time, the longest flight in the world from Johannesburg to Atlanta. 16 and a half hours. How much code did you write? Or was that before laptops? Oh, I'm, I, 
That was the 20th century. It was still using an abacus. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So getting us somewhat back on track. Um, it's not fully back on track. Don't worry. Uh, if you're actually going to want us to talk about uh, like microservices, you probably need to skip 30 seconds ahead because I just want we'll to put know a timestamp in the description if you want to yeah. jump. <laughs> uh, because uh, you said that Perigo is of Paris in the same way that people say, uh, oh, uh, this person's driving is a New Yorkish. In the same way that for in many of the code teams that I've worked in, uh, you know, the people could say, oh, this is a really Jerusalem PR. This is not. <laughs> it can it can go. It can go through. You need you need to fix this and that and that design. So let me get back. I'm sorry. High level, the way I understand it, is that building microservices is harder because you separate different containers and then you have to deal with how do you deploy it? And then you someone says Kubernetes and then you curse yourself for the next two years. But there is the benefit, which is mostly, you know, decoupling your software. And then it's like technical problems, but the organizational benefit. Because different teams can release different parts, different components of the software in theoretically independently. It does require still a little bit of finesse. Like don't do the same DB and make sure you don't expose state in the API and stuff like that to actually make it decoupled. Let's say I have a somewhat well-architected microservice architecture right now. Would using Perigo make it easier from like a DevOps and, you know, operational standpoint without harming the benefits? Like the teams can still work independently? Yeah, I mean, that's been a key effort. I personally have a joke about Kubernetes. Um, I know you you just made one too, although you may not have admitted it. <laughs> it takes two years to implement Kubernetes. But I have a joke, which is half a joke, which is if I don't know the name of the firm you work for, you don't have a problem big enough to justify Kubernetes. And that's a little bit of an overstatement, but it's not a tremendous overstatement. So part of this is to give people a simpler, what I call middle ground between kind of running a bunch of things from the command line yourself and Kubernetes on the other end, which people are jumping to with both feet. So yeah, it will help you. The big thing that it'll help you with is things that you want in dev that may, you may or may not want in, in prod. So a simple example of that is testing. If you've ever worked on a microservices project, testing is an absolute nightmare because the state of the system can get, well, really, really off, you know, in terms of what you're trying to test. I'll just give you an, a, another example is from the real world. There's a big Stripe office here in Atlanta. I met somebody from there. They have about 300 microservices in production. So how do you test your code? Like you want to test your code, but it exists in this world. What would that look like, right? How should you do that? And um, yeah, it's hard to do. That was one of the sort of inspirations for Perigo. I had the problems myself as a developer, but yeah, re repeatability or anything that needs to be in a very well-defined state is going to be a lot easier using Perigo. I wish you mentioned Stripe as an example, but I wish Square, which also has microservice architecture, would have listened or because... I know they use Go internally, uh, but unfortunately, I also know they had a day-long outage. So people who've been using Square for payment processing, they got their tests in prod, and man, it was a long 24 hours for them. I'm not jealous of anyone who has to use Square alone. They test in prod at Stripe. Yeah. <laughs> High level. How does Perigo work? This is great to be on the Go podcast, a Go-based podcast, because it's actually an easy question to answer for Go people, which is move everything behind channels, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can block on them and do timeouts and all of the usual things that you kind of would expect from a network. But by hiding everything behind channels, microservices can talk to each other without knowing what the network or lack of it is. So if you run in one process, the channels are kind of more or less directly connected one process to another. I say process, sorry, WASM program. And we should talk about WASM at some point. But the upshot of it is that if you hide everything behind channels, you can do select and you're good to go because you get a, you know, a concurrent system, but it is singly threaded for any individual program. So if you have five services, they can run concurrently, but each individual only gets a, a single thread, which is much easier also for debugging because, you know, let's also face it, multi-threading with shared memory is really hard and that's why channels exist, right? Mm -hmm. So it sounds like uh, Perigo is, is kind of a, a different way to build your microservices architecture. In other words, I'm not going to just say, oh, I have this microservices architecture. It's a little bit clunky. I want to improve it. Let's just go add Perigo. That doesn't sound like that's the way to go, right? At the moment, that's certainly true. There are 
some things I have planned on the roadmap kind of things that would, for example, let you partially try Perigo. So you could have some of your services written using Perigo and some of them written, if you will, the old way. And that's basically by using gRPC to talk to each other because that's what most people use for their microservices. So that's the first step. The second step is supporting more and more of the sort of APIs that people expect. gRPC is one, but I actually already support protobufs. So all of the mm -hmm. microservices and Perigo itself are defined in protofile. And so you just generate a bunch of code from those to handle all of the communication and, and so forth. In fact, we not only generate data structures, we generate all the communication, initialization. We There's a lot of stuff that is machine generated in Perigo. It's about almost as much machine-generated code itself as handwritten code, if you will. About 15, 20,000 lines each. So a lot of the boilerplate of writing microservices would be taken care of by the but like by the framework. But I have to define a well-defined spec in uh, gRPC. Well, yeah, don't don't say gRPC. This is really protobufs. Oh yeah, so gRPC yeah, also implies protobufs, but they are all they're kind of a network protocol as well. Yeah. So yeah, and obviously I can't like just out of the box sort of say, oh yeah, gRPC, no problem, because what does that even mean if you've got ten services running in the same program? Yeah. Should I use gRPC between the channels? I mean, you know, <laughs> that, that seems kind of silly. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, we, we don't specifically say gRPC, but we're certainly working on trying to get that as the, when you deploy as microservices, we'll want you to be able to, to work with existing code in a nice way. Um, there are a bunch of other people, which I'm happy to discuss with, with folks who are interested. Send me an email, shoot me a, a you know, an email or something. There are other people trying to do WASM-based uh, microservices in the shortest path from existing code. We could talk about it, but philosophy standpoint, I was like, I'm not going to build Linux again, and I'm not going to build Unix again. How does it go? Unix is not only dead, but it's starting to smell bad. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I'm an old school Unix guy, but I kind of felt like it was time to think about other ways of defining things other than file descriptors, which is fundamentally what Unix is. Yeah, I guess this is a good uh, chance to uh, pause and ask, you know, if people want to reach you just because you mentioned, you know, come talk to me. Where can people find you other than the gopher slack all right they, yeah, i'm in the cup of go channel definitely you can reach me there i'm ian smith no surprise um i'm ian smith on twitter i'm ian smith on uh, github i see that's how old i am you can tell i'm old because <laughs> i have my name actually og usernames my, on all the <laughs> og usernames yeah but the main way is uh ian smith which is i-a-n-s-m-i-t-h at perigo.info which is also the documentation website for perigo and that's P A R I G O T dot info. Uh, and yeah, there's domain squatters even in other languages. So, uh, I, <laughs> guy tried to sell me perigo.com for like two grand, and I was like, nah, I'm not ready to do that. Well, maybe not yet. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a domain squatter and you're listening, go pick on another domain. Go find like, go uh, squat on some like Rust and the Scala domains. Leave the Go domains alone. <laughs> so, I'm curious to talk about this uh, WebAssembly angle. First question, why WebAssembly? Why not just go binaries? Well, that is an excellent question. And let me tell you that I have days when I wish I had made a different decision, <laughs> as you were okay. suggesting. WebAssembly, though, uh, offers a big benefit. You were making a point a minute ago about just how can I just like easily move my stuff onto mm -hmm. Perigo. Well, Perigo is actually language neutral. I implement my stuff in Go and the client programs that I write are, are Go because that's the language I like. But Wasm, you can compile that from just about anything mm -hmm. these days. And also definition of the Perigo infrastructure is done at the Wasm level so that you could write Python that talks to it just as well as you can write Go. Now, it, to make it Pythonic, which I've recently learned is the correct adjective. You may need a client-side library to make it more feel like Python, but there's no reason you can't just call the functions the same way that the Go code does. And it, it'll, it'll work just fine. So this, this protobufs.protofiles and Wasm means that you can also have multiple languages in your same project, which is actually something that people like about microservices, that I can write my AI code or whatever in Python, and it's just behind a service that nobody needs to know it's written in, in Python. Yeah, and, you know, the, the alternative, let's say if you're listening to this show, probably 
uh, most of your backend is uh, Go and it's microservices and it's separated by uh, you know various RPC, uh, whether it's uh, Open API uh, or uh, gRPC, yay, uh, right? <laughs> but there does come a time where you want a specific thing. You mentioned AI, referring to like let's do machine learning and that can be done with Python. And my uh, previous company, we had a really specific part of the tech stack where we wanted to use some data processing language called JSONADA, which is a really, really strong engine to working with JSON data. And, you know, I already started, we really had to choose between two evils, either setting up a different language uh, microservice uh, and then starting to work with Node in the back end, which we didn't have up until then. We had Python, Scala, and Go, and it was like, okay, another one, seriously? Then you have to pick, it's Node, is it Dino, is it whatever? It's not a language any of us know, like the, the ins and outs of. But we, you know, setting up a different language was so rough. Either you do a whole different microservices or you go down the madness route of bindings, which is what we ended up doing. We ended up doing V8 inside. Jonathan, if you remember the talk yeah. we had with Tamir, he interviewed here on the show. He's the, he, he was the one who did that. So it seems so like, obviously you, Wasm, that's a promise, but it just seems so strong to do that promise of let's do two different languages on the same binary, on the same, like iron, it's going to run on the same uh, CPU uh, without any uh, headaches and pain, just because the spec is so good. Is it really yeah. there yet? Wasm? Uh, yeah, this, this spec for Wasm, at least the current version, is, is very, very good. And if, if you don't know this, just for the benefit of folks that haven't studied it, it's actually got what I call second mover advantage in the marketplace, which is they learned all the things that made JIT compilers have trouble in the past and that people had to do a lot of engineering to work around. And so they actually designed the spec so that the JIT compilers can have an easier job and do a better optimization. So it, people are already getting like 75% native speed, you know, on, on reasonable size programs, and it's only going to get better. The, the difference between WASM and, and native native code is going to be an asymptotically decreasing, you know, function. So I, it's going to be around for a while. The real question is, what about the other parts of it? Like, do you want WASI? WASI is there basically unix emulation layer with file descriptors and all of all the usual stuff they are they're doing sockets and all of that machinery and they're trying to make that part of a spec that you can add on to wasm i i personally just said no nah, I'm, I'm not going to do that this time i'm going to take a different route and make the programming model much more straightforward because we only have one mechanism which is rpc calls that's it there is no nothing else if you want to open a file you call the file service and the file service opens the file and hands you back a token right so mm -hmm. i I'm, i just didn't want to invent unix again at this point yeah uh, going deeper and deeper at some point you have to, to grab the brakes <laughs> Yeah, and, and Unix has been around for a long time, and so a lot of people want to build it again because they like it. Mm -hmm. So you, you touched on a topic that I, w I wanted to ask about, and that is performance. Because I, I can imagine a lot of listeners are probably thinking, this sounds really cool, but I want their performance of native code. You know, And, and I say this, we, we interviewed uh, the, co the, the maintainer of Fast HTTP. Uh, which is known for being fast, but you should never use it <laughs> because nobody needs that performance. I wonder if, if you might have the same sort of angle here. Like, yeah, it might be nice to have that extra 25% performance, but nobody really needs it. I don't know. What do you think? What do you say to these people? I would say that human beings are the most expensive part of any project by at least two orders of magnitude. And if you have to throw another server in the rack, of course, nobody has racks anymore, but yeah. if you know what I mean. If you remember the 20th century when we had racks. Yeah, then, yeah we had racks in our offices. <laughs> anyway, uh, the upshot of all that is I think the programming efficiency is actually the thing to try to work on, yeah. not like absolute machine efficiency. I think you will get near native performance soonish uh, out of Wasm anyway, but even if it were half the speed, um, you know, it's not the expensive part that you need to be optimizing, right? I mean, I'll just give a simple example for you guys, and you'll love this <laughs> or hate it, is uh, Perigo is singly threaded from the standpoint of any single service. You have to, it's a bit like JavaScript in that it has a continuations model, I don't know, or futures or no, mm -hmm. they're called uh, promises in JavaScript. But you have that main loop that has to run. Well, this is the same way. And I made that choice so that lots of different programming languages 
could work with the system because it didn't require multi-threading and it made the programming model have a you know i hate to say it but a strict ordering right mm -hmm. you know you do a you do b you do c you don't need to worry about what you need to, to lock to get access to C, I felt that that was, you know, hugely beneficial for the people that implement services. Mm -hmm. um, it also means that I can clone your service to give you more copies of your service by just launching a new Go routine onto the same code path. Because under the covers, each single thread of a uh, client program is actually a Go routine because the infrastructure uses Go routines. So on the same machine, it's very easy to horizontally scale the every like instance of every service. And for some other reasons, it's actually pretty easy to do it across multiple machines too. And the reason, if you're curious, is because you can't actually see the network. You can talk to the guy who implements the HTTP service if you want to have input or output from HTTP, but you can't see a socket. You can't see a file descriptor. You know, you go along and then moving your process between machines is actually not too hard because we know you don't have open sockets. You don't have open file descriptors. So that means that we can just pick up and move your process more or less at will. Cool. You mentioned, uh, you know, that the expensive part is the development and touching on, you know, developer uh, experience. There's one thing you mentioned, which is cognitive load, which is lowered by using uh, Perigo. When I develop uh, microservices and I have to worry about the network and multi-threading and then touching files and state and locks, I have a lot of cognitive load. And, you know, your uh, claim here is that Perigo will lower it. Also, you briefly mentioned at the beginning, it's a lot easier to test. So oh, yeah. I assume that, you know, what you're aiming at is feedback loops, which is another like core dimension of developer experience. The feedback loop is a lot faster than having to deploy it to a cluster and then wait for the pod to die and go back up and whatever. One thing I am worried about is flow state with all this you know, this sort of layer between me and, and my machine and my code and like and the and the usual stuff I deal with, I do have to keep in mind Perigo itself, right? The paradigms and how it works yeah. and the and how my API is designed. Since you've mentioned you've worked on this project for a while, do you think that programming uh, using Perigo, you know, it has the benefits of keeping a, a program simple so the cognitive load, load is lower it's a single binary that you can run on your machine so the feedback loop is pretty short especially for testing but how does it feel you know programming it is it easy to get into the zone into a flow state it's very good that you asked that question i really appreciate it you, a couple of episodes ago you had someone talking about developer experience right and and there was some great points made i'm not saying that they the person or maybe it was you two i don't but if, if you two said it maybe it was wrong but not your guess. probably was <laughs> if it was a guess it was right i guess exactly uh but what i will tell you is that thing you just mentioned getting to flow having something that you know, is easy to understand, I can get my feedback really quickly, is the kind of developer experience, in quotes, that I care about. That's the thing that I care about. Now, the nice thing is, since we only have one mechanism, you know, if you need a file, you call the file service, it hands you back a token, and then you can do read on the token or something along that line, right? So it is symmetric in the sense that all of the things work the same way. The testing, there's a bunch of machinery involving testing if you're not familiar with testing microservices it is a is it fair to say it's a fate worse than death i mean having to try it's to kind of rough yeah and so one of the things you can do is real unit tests you can actually run your services quite easily in isolation because you know we know the boundaries and we can fire up just the parts that are needed. But the other thing is uh, reliable ordering, uh, which is pretty hard to get with most microservice infrastructures. In fact, many people don't even try. But have you ever like had the problem that your tests flake occasionally because things come up in, a, in an order you weren't expecting or you didn't, you didn't test for? That problem goes away. We guarantee the topological sort so that all of your dependencies are up and running before you are. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we'll complain if you build you know, it. It happens to other people's code, not mine. Mine is perfect. Oh, but oh, I, okay, I'm sure yeah. many of our listeners uh, can relate. Personally, I can't. But many of our listeners can. Well, I, I never wrote any code like that, of course, in the past. But Yeah, I use uh, bugless-oriented programming. I don't know if you... <laughs>
the test-driven development is a really important thing for me. I'm actually a huge uh, TDE user myself, mm-hmm. and I have not been able to get into that kind of flow with Perigo yet. And I'm not sure what needs to change, but um, something. And I'm not quite sure what it is yet. Um, because the, the loop of writing protofiles, generating code, and then trying to design the test, I feel like the code generator should actually generate some test scaffolding as well. To try to to try to make it easy to test. So I actually we had two things at a previous place when we used uh, Proto extensively. So the first one was a validator. There's uh, I don't remember the project name exactly, but it's like Proto C Gen Validate, where you can Ooh. add a bunch of validation rules on top of your Proto, and then all that stuff gets auto generated as well, and it's very easy to define high level. Like this should be an email instead of just a string type, yeah. uh, which is nice. Uh, and the second thing, it's an angle. I I don't think it's popular yet, but for me, it's been working really well. Uh, is dumping the API spec into a like I have a pre-trained LLM on my machine just for that to take API and generate API tests out of some checklist. Like I opened the checklist, what API test should you run on API, REST API, blah, 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 put it in the LLM, told it now translate it to gRPC. Again, these are just like titles. It's not tied to any specific API. And then I, you can dump in, you know, the gRPC, the actual proto slash gRPC API. It will spit out, I don't know, something that's 60% good enough to get started working with. It compiles. Uh, and from there you can tweak it yourself. Some people feel really uncomfortable with that and for me for sure the first two times it was like even the thinking part i'm gonna give to the to the llm but it worked if talking about flow state it really kept me in a flow state because you know the the annoying part of getting the obvious cases out of the way and going to a checklist online trying to find yeah what happens if this is zero this is nil blah 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 that all gets like generated and then i feel comfortable enough thinking about the actually interesting cases you know actual interesting inputs within uh, and if you yeah. raise the temperature of that LLM, sometimes you get really, really interesting tests. You get a lot of garbage, but you also get really interesting cases. Yeah, I can just tell you that that's one of my standard replies to people who ask if you know AI is going to replace all of us. And I say no. And one of the reasons is the perverse incentives that it creates. So I'll just give you an example with the thing you mentioned. Once you get it good enough that you stop looking at it, it becomes dangerous. So the better the AI gets, the more likely it's going to introduce a bug, security risk, what have you, that you will miss precisely because it's better if you see where I'm going with that. Mm-hmm, and that yes. perverse incentive is not going anywhere. And there are also studies that show that people who use AI to generate code uh, actually put more security bugs in their code than people who don't. That might be that might be because they just uh, ship more. <laughs> but you know, this is a whole different. If we're talking about stuff we can talk for, about for a semester, this is yeah, a whole yeah. ca- can of uh, you know auto-generated worms. Uh, and well, as an AI model, I cannot talk about that anymore. Just, <laughs> I'm, I'm an I'm an old-fashioned compiler guy, right? Yeah. So I use compiler tech whenever I have a problem to solve. So early in the show, you mentioned that uh, for the last year you've been running your own business. Yep. Is that business related to Perigo? Yes. Are you selling Perigo? Tell us how that works. That, that's an excellent question. I appreciate it. So full disclosure, there is a, a, a service that is coming online that I have turning over that is based on Perigo, but Perigo is going to remain open source, free to use, BSD three clause license. So that is a gift to the world. You can do whatever you want with it. What I'm going to try to do is sell add-ons, particularly that are interesting to your your corporate customers. For example, there'll be a service that you pay for that's like I don't know, single sign-on, right? And and using SAML to you, you know, something like that. And you know, you're free to write that service yourself. And I'll even take a pull request if if you want. But mm-hmm. that kind of thing where there's add-on services that solve some specific set of problems that a bigger organization, for example, might have, those are the kinds of things uh, that the company is going to sell, as well as dirt cheap um, hosting. Because for the reasons I mentioned before, we can run on cloud hardware that's like between 50 and 90% discounted from typical. So because, as I said, we can move your program around. We, we can actually suspend it move it somewhere else and keep and then continue running and there's no no harm to the program which means we can use cheaper hardware yeah so cheaper hardware and in my mind this could be really useful also for you know like scaling up and down without worrying on scaling a single interface so 
if I had a thing that was pretty, I wanted to build big, but right now it's small. Maybe I would think about doing serverless, but serverless is, has its own like whole host of problems and issues and whatever. Also a really, really good, um, you know, compromise for that. That makes sense. It is a good compromise for people who, if you don't know the old joke, it's, you know, never underestimate the bandwidth of a, a large car full of mag tape, right? I mean, that's got a lot of bandwidth, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of the thing that we can do fairly transparently is we can scale up your program within the constraints of a single machine, single single process, type, not single process, single service. That's easy for us to do. As I said, you just spawn another Go routine and spawn it onto their code and you're done, right? So now you have two things that can get requests and two copies. Um, there's some other trickery that we're doing behind the scenes, but that's the basic gist of it. Now that doesn't solve the problem. If you need two gigantic machines and you only want to use them when you need them, that's back to the usual set of microservice problems. Although most people don't. You can go a long way with one server in this day and age. People just yeah. get excited about Kubernetes and I don't know. It's a thing. Well, I think that's a good place to move on to our regular questions. You're a listener, so you know what they are, and I'm sure yes, you're prepared. I, I am. Gun to your head, you have to take something out of Go. What's it going to be? For me, it would be named return values. I know that somebody said that a couple weeks back, and mm-hmm. it's everybody was agreeing with it. I don't like named return values. I deeply dislike uh, the, what? It, this just does return? Where's the, yeah. what? I mean, you know. That doesn't make any sense to me. I, I don't, well, I mean, it, it has the defer thing that you kind of need that for. But um, if I was going to pick something a little more interesting than that, is that embedding struct, not embedding interfaces, embedding structs causes many people to become confused and think that Go is object-oriented, which yeah, it is not. Yeah. So that is such a gotcha that, you know, maybe you could solve it with documentation. I don't know, but I'd probably take embedding structs out. Actually, and I don't use that feature because Hmm. I find it actually leads me to making mistakes as well. Interesting. That is a feature I use, although I'm I'm trying to think how would I do it otherwise. I'll have to think about that. That's that's a good one. I like that one. The only thing I'd say is um, even if you understand embedding structs, most people don't know about the performance costs of embedding structs. If you don't do it in the right order or whatever, Go is not great at, uh, you know, padding your structs greatly. You can end up with huge objects, even though they only hold buildings. Really mm-hmm. weird. Yeah. It, it's re- I guess it's really weird for the people who wrote the compile. It's all like, it's awkward for all of us, not just the yeah. users. Uh, and the flip side of that question, which we usually ask is, you know, you've mentioned a few different languages, a few different frameworks. What would you add to Go if you could pick, you know, one thing to, to yank? Wait, wait, you want me to yank something or add something? <laughs> yank from a different place. Yank is in ah, Vim oh, okay. yank, like copy from one the, place and put it in the other. In my language, that's called theft which is a good yes. thing. <laughs> and um, I've got two that I hope will be uh, so popular from this show that somebody will write up a proposal. And these are dash flags for the compiler. And one of them would be simple reflect only, which is a compiler choice. That means the runtime should not use the entire re- or should refuse access to all of the reflect library and as a consequence the go compiler could do dead code elimination because one of the reasons it it gets these huge binaries now is because it has to assume that anybody could do reflection and start calling methods on things and all that kind of stuff so if you just said i am want to forbid the things that would cause you to not be able to do dead code elimination then that that's what i would want i don't know if you know but the tiny go compiler compiles hello world to four kilobytes four kilobytes why because they don't implement the whole reflect library and therefore they don't have this problem and they do dead code elimination and bingo four kilobytes for hello world so that would be one i'll throw another one at you of a very similar type uh i would like to have dash near myth which is I implement an interface, if some struct is almost implementing an interface, I want you to give me something, either an an error, a warning, I don't know what you want to call it. But the reason that we all do that trick where we say underscore equals, and then we put the name of the interface and Mm. the struct in there is simply to make sure that problem is dodged, right? You want to make sure this thing implements that interface. So I'd like just to have the compiler do that for me with dash near miss, right? If I got five of the six methods from some interface, interface that's likely this guy thinks he implements whatever that interface is that sounds like a good linter 
Yeah, that would be an awesome linter, but it's rather complicated to decide when you want to, because you don't want to do a lot of false positives. Now, you wouldn't but, want every you know, IR reader to trigger for IR read closer. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, that, that was just what I was about to say, because, you know, multiple interfaces, how do you know which one to look at even? But definitely for interfaces that you wrote, like not interfaces from other packages, but interfaces that are in your project, not yeah. in one of the dependencies, I can totally get why we do that. Or maybe just same model. Well, if you're a listener and you're looking for two really good uh, open source contributions to go, these both sound actually reasonable, which is a breath of fresh air for these responses, which are usually, <laughs> I want to do, you know, I want everything to be twice as fast. <laughs> yeah, and I, I wanted to just say full credit to the, the, the Go team at Google and elsewhere, other contributors elsewhere. Because the Wasm support now is pretty good. It's good enough that you don't even worry. Like, you don't even think about generating Wasm code anymore. I, I just ignore it, and it works fine, mm-hmm. right? It's like there was, no, there was no drop in the quality or the way the compiler's ability to produce code. It was really, like, smooth like butter. Cool. Well, that's really cool, Ian. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on and sharing about uh, Perigo. Again, it's pe- Perigot dot info (laughs) one time my Israeli accent comes in useful is when you have to say things how they are actually spelled but just as a shout out for uh Josh who again going back to how we got this conversation suggested we put this thread on and then you uh, came to us I'll even do it in the Talon alphabet which is that project Cursorless he's working on so it's uh pit air red sit that's Perry and then again uh gust Odd trap got perigot.info. Uh, be sure to check it out. The documentation is uh, succinct but great. And I think if you want to set up, you know, a small, you know, the project in your company just to POC that that is that it works uh, right yeah. now, this is something that it's ready for. Yeah, I, and actually, I forgot to mention this that I'm actively looking for feedback, and I will listen to anybody because. I have literally spent a year of my life in a hole building this thing. And there is definitely things that you're going to go, oh, my goodness, that's terrible. And I want to hear about that because I've been looking at it for a long time. So please, if you try it and it doesn't work or doesn't solve your problem, please tell me what's wrong with it. And I'll, I'll make a promise that I will work hard to fix all of these complaints that I get. Yeah, now we got some uh, more ears on it. Uh, maybe we can get some hands and eyes on it as well. If that interests you, go check out paragod.info. Thanks a lot, Ian. Thank, Thank you. you. I appreciate it.